Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Splash, splash, splash. Splash Weather Repel Premium Windshield Wash features a three-in-one formula that repels rain, sleet, snow, and bugs while leaving a streak-free shine. It keeps you seeing safely all year long. Pick up some at Walmart today. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the world's finest podcast for songs about mass destruction. We're going to start this episode off, as we usually do, with a little bit of trivia. You know more than I know. All right, I'm going to go first today with a non-audio round, and I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to name mine. I'm going to call this one Monikerses. (laughs) Okay. So we've been doing a lot of research uh, for this turntable talk, and I've noticed that a lot of the singers that we discuss have kind of goofy nicknames like Rabbit and stuff. So I went through, and I found a list of some nicknames of people, some singers, that you know. Okay. I'm going to give you the nickname, and I want you to tell me what the person's real name is. Oh, boy. Okay. Okay? So it's not like, it shouldn't be like an alias. It should just be a nickname, like Possum, for example. It would be George Jones. There you go. That, that kind of thing. That's what I'm hoping for, at least. Okay. All right? We'll try it. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. The Mod Father. Pete Townsend? Paul Weller. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. The Pope of Mope. <laughs> Morrissey? Morrissey it is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> that he was the Grand Wizard of Mope. <laughs> Nuke. N-E-W-K. N-E-W-K. Yep. Jazz guy. Nuke. I don't know. Duke Ellington? Sonny Rollins. It's kind of a weird one. It just doesn't seem to really make any sense. So, Is there a reason? Not that I was able to find. So I went through and was actually looking into how a lot of these came about. And that one, from what I saw, people don't seem to know. I'm sure it's out there. If somebody does know, please tell me. (laughs) Okay. So that I have information that I don't currently have. 
<laughs> All right. Next one is Plonk. P-L-O-N-K. Plonk. <laughs> Plonk. Oh, gosh. Um... I have no idea. Animal from the Muppets. Ronnie Lane. All right. Bonzo. That's um, uh, Bonham. John Bonham. Yes, it is. Yep. Here's a nice one. Nice, easy one. A layup, I hope. Shaky. (laughs) Shaky? Shaky. A layup. He's got an autobiography with this name. Shaky. I have no idea. Elvis Presley? Neil Young. Ow. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think I have heard him called that before. But Next one, The Velvet Fog. One of my favorite nicknames. Oh, I've heard this. It's like Prince or something. Mel Torme. Ooh. If you were up on your night court, you would know that one probably. (laughs) I used to like night court quite a bit. Yeah, it's a good show. He talks about Mel Torme a lot. The next one is The Red Rocker. I've never heard this one, but you might, you probably have. Yeah, it's uh, Sammy Hagar. Yes, it is. All right. Captain Trips. (laughs) <laughs> Captain Trips um, I don't know, Jerry Garcia It is, very okay. good mm-hmm. Yeah, it is Jerry Garcia Okay, That was a guess Okay, so this next one is one That I just saw before we started recording So it may need to be checked <laughs> But I've never heard it But it's awesome So I hope it's real it is the bronzed Liberace. The bronzed Liberace. Yeah, yeah. Bronzed Liberace. Oh. Freddie Mercury, I guess. Little Richard. Makes even more sense. Yeah. It's a really great nickname. Yeah, that's a great... Yeah, I love it. This next one was only used one time, but it's a good nickname, and... The reason it was only used once was because the person to whom it was being attributed hated it. And it is Wool Hat. <laughs> Which is a good nickname, right? Yeah, I love it. I wish people would call me that. It was used one time in the pilot episode of a show and never again. Mm. Musician. Wool Hat. Pilot episode of a show. No idea. It is Michael Nesmith. Oh. They tried they tried to stick him with the nickname Wool Hat. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> and then the last one, I think everyone will know this. Pond scum. Pond scum? Mm-hmm. Everyone should know this one. Gigi Allen or something? Oh, Billy Joel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I should have got that one. I thought that was the the easiest one. That was the gimme. That one. <laughs> well, 
I think a lot of those names make perfect sense, and some of them make no sense at all. So there you go. Exactly. Yeah, but the nicknames of musicians are just so much fun. It'd be kind of fun to do a whole turntable talk on how certain people's nicknames came to be. Yeah. There's some stories that are, are great, and there's some stories that are just so horrible that, that they're worth telling because they're that, that terrible. Okay, we'll go on to, to my quiz. Uh, I've got the audio quiz. I got a name for my quiz too. It's called Quickfire. With the theme of today's show, we're talking about disaster songs. So what I did is I um, pulled 13 different musicians saying one word, and you'll, you'll figure out what the word is pretty quick if you haven't already. And your job is to simply name all 13 musicians. They go real quick. It's one short track. So you're probably going to have to listen to it a couple times, both you, Joe, and, and people at home. Okay. There is 13, which I figured was an appropriate number for today's unlucky folk. That's very clever. I assume it was an accident. No. Well, usually, usually when I do clever things, they are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go. Fire. Joe, 13th for 13. Wow. It sure seemed like it was going to be easy when it started, and I don't think I have any even close to half of them yet. I'll have to listen to that again at the end of the show. And I was thinking when you said it was themed on disaster songs, I thought that what we would be hearing would be 13 people saying, ah! <laughs> no, that was the horror episode. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 13 people just... Screaming for their life. Maybe next time. We will play that again at the end and tell you the answers. So hang on for that. Hang on for dear life. That one was really hard. Again, you're you're making these really difficult. They're not difficult if you know the answers, Joe. Do you... Um, okay, okay. When was the last time you listened to music? I've been trying to cut myself off. like <laughs> Weeding yourself down. <laughs> I don't need that the teat of music anymore. <laughs> Ooh. All right. I think it's time for the turntable talk. Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. There are, in fact, a lot of ways to die. And you can be assured one of those ways will be waiting for you. Sure, it's possible you'll go quietly in your sleep, surrounded by your loved ones, peacefully relinquished into the great beyond. And though some of us might be granted this small comfort of a quiet, unassuming death, it's also possible that our head gets mistaken for a shiny rock and an eagle smashes a turtle against it, hoping to unleash all its tasty turtle goo like Aeschylus, or that we choke to death on a bottle cap while tilting our head back for eye drops, a la Tennessee Williams. I hate it when that happens. 
Or even, as what happened to daredevil Bobby Leach, we might absently step on an orange peel and die from complications caused by the ensuing fall. Either way, our ends are just that, ends. Nothing much left beyond memories and relics that are then placed in the minds and hands of people who meander on a similarly spiraling doomsday clock. And while some can gain immortality through the perceived value that they have provided to a finicky world, this too seems like it's bound by some arbitrary fate that picks and chooses the giants of history. And if one can't achieve meaning and significance in their own time, there's certainly another alternative to obtaining historical relevance and lasting fame. Dying. Maybe you'll only be a number. One of 602 incinerated in the Iroquois Theater fire. One of 1,517 drowned and frozen passengers of the iceberg-taunting Titanic. One of the 362 miners blown up, trapped, and suffocated under the hills of Monongah. One of 36 that came crashing down to earth in the fiery remains of the Hindenburg. One of the six Lawson children stacked in the tobacco barn after being murdered by their father. One of four presidents gunned down while in office. However you go, your number will be remembered. And if you're lucky, mourned over. While music is often dominated by songs of love, romantic love, fleeting love, spiritual love, puppy love, love of place, love of country, love of Waffle House delicacies, there's a dark side to that jukebox coin, an obsession we all have with the darkness, a bleak reality that is as unknown as it is universal. It's riveting, enthralling, and oddly comforting to delve into other people's tragedies. And honestly, we can't get enough of it. Everyone loves a train wreck, quite literally, and especially if it's being sung about by the likes of Johnny Cash. Today, we are examining an old tradition that keeps being reborn in tragedy, public and private, national and local. Songs that are constant reminders that our hubris has blinders, our safety merely an illusion, and our demise inevitable. Often acting as moral reminders of what happens when we flaunt our disregard for our environment, become too enmeshed with technology, or forget the true nature of mankind. Songs that ensured that the victims, sometimes the perpetrators, would never be forgotten, and the tales would be sung for generations. Music of the calamities that are part of a national consciousness, and of the grim cataclysms that we collectively yearn to forget. Equal parts eulogy, sermon, and tabloid. Today we bring you the history of disaster songs. Ode, what a feeling. America in the early part of the 20th century was tough living. Mother Nature brought floods, famine, drought, plagues, storms, and fire. The burgeoning industrial complex meant crashes, wrecks, accidents, bridge collapses, meat grinder mishaps, intentional or not, mining disasters, and general technological endangerment. And of course, you still had to contend with your fellow man, many of whom are unstable, dangerous, and downright evil. In the 1920s, as the country was soon to face one of its darkest hours with the Great Depression snickering from around the corner, the prevalence of disaster songs was a reflection both of a society reckoning with the events occurring around them 
and a music industry that was looking to profit from this fascination. There was a need for collective mourning, and disaster songs would meet that need. Ravel Carr, in an article for the Journal of New York Folklore, listed six characteristics for a true disaster song. One, they had to describe actual historic events. Two, they had to be about massive loss of life. Three, they had to include unheeded warnings with human culpability and divine retribution. Four, they had to have a formulaic approach, but include dates and discernible information. Five, they had to be sensational and graphic. And finally, six, they had to be empathetic to the victims and survivors. These traits speak to the purpose of the songs. Carr argues that these songs serve a social function, allowing for communal healing that allows coping with chaotic and traumatic life events, shared grief, bearing witness to the death we all must eventually face, or to take solace in the fact that your shitty existence is at least better than someone else's complete lack of one, hopefully. A cousin to the murder ballads, disaster songs are more lurid, more gripping a newsreel that can be slowed down or reviewed to examine all the gritty details. Balladeers were simultaneously eulogizing and capitalizing on the events that captured our imagination, stoked our fears, and tugged upon our sympathies. Sensation sells, and so does morality. A safe way to connect to the upheaval while still retaining a dignified sense of sadness and an air of self-righteousness. Of course, these tragic tales have deep roots in both traditional ballads and African-American work songs. Folk songs and broadside ballads brought from the British Isles have long been a vehicle for providing descriptive details of local tragedies with emotional resonance and no shortage of moral lessons. The more personal the catastrophe and the more relatable the suffering, the more beloved the song. People seemed especially drawn to the voyeuristic opportunities to experience horror from the safety of their parlors or sitting rooms. So one thing I've noticed that goes back a lot further, and some of this is apocryphal, but songs, nursery rhymes, and songs like Ring Around the Rosy, and I think there's even a song about Mrs. O'Leary's cow that's for children that are supposed to be songs about warning kids, like Ring Around the Rosy is supposed to be about... Plague, right? The, the plague. Yeah. What do you think about, like, the oral traditions that allow to pass down both kind of entertainment and important lessons or important cultural norms or, or morals? And I think that's a that's a way you teach kids, you know? So yep. it kind of, it, it makes sense that that continues on through through adulthood and through generations. The oral tradition is something that may be disappearing in some ways because of technology now, but it's been incredibly important for thousands of years. There are lots of things that we don't even realize are, are references to disasters or warnings from, you know, centuries ago. Well, that's why I'm hoping people are memorizing these Highway Hi-Fi podcast episodes so they can tell their children when it all goes to shit. <laughs> that was episode two. <laughs> <laughs> Work songs of the slavery era used improvisation in a call-and-response framework over well-known tunes to adapt the lyrics to incorporate the current happenings and pass along information. 
Using conventional and beloved song formats, balladeers could easily and quickly encapsulate the day's tragedies so that the content of the song was completely fresh and relevant, but with the music that sounds so familiar, it is as if the audience had been listening their entire lives. The melody acted as a template, and the lyrics as a newspaper. In the nascent turn of the century, the commercial music and sheet music industries centered on Tin Pan Alley, where an interesting trend was noticed. As almost an escape from the big city industrialization, people seemed to take a particular interest in songs that romantically and wistfully recalled an idyllic life in the genteel South. This mindset created a mythic Dixie that fueled the creation of songs that were performed in vaudeville reviews, published in sheet music, and eventually recorded and played on the radio. Eventually, these Dixiescapes began to involve disasters and tragedies, which has proved to be a tried-and-true method to gain popular appeal. In 1909, the publication of a comedy railroad song about a brave train engineer who ran his train fast and heroically sacrificed his life to save scores of passengers. The Ballad of Casey Jones was so immensely beloved that the man was soon an American mythological figure and a taste for Southern disaster-themed songs was formed. Eventually, any sort of comic aspect was dropped from the song, and it's become a true standard. Here's a 1927 version by the Skillet Lickers. After Casey Jones, more and more focus was showered on tragedy songs, which were slowly becoming the modern form of the broadside ballad. A Tale of a Doomed Spelunker was the next big topical song, and it began a rage for country music that was event exploitation. Texas-born, operatically trained singer Vernon Dahlhart is immensely important to the history of country music. Recording 5,000 singles under 100 different pseudonyms, including country music's first million seller, 1924's Wreck of the Old 97. That was a song about a derailed mail train that killed 11 railroad men in 1903. On the success of this song, Dahlhart started focusing on hillbilly music, and a year later would record a song called The Death of Floyd Collins. Floyd Collins had famously died while trapped in a Kentucky cave a couple months prior to Dollhart recording the song. The failed rescue of Collins was such a huge national story that spread via the new technology of radio that this B-side song commemorating the events became an unexpected success. The song started with a very traditional-sounding Come All You People and ended with the final verse about heavenly judgment, which provides a sort of template for all sorts of the modern event disaster songs. Dollhart would become known as a Ambulance-chasing balladeer recording some 80 songs about tragic events throughout his career. 
Which really, when you think about it, when you re- if you record 5,000 songs, 80 songs is a pretty small percentage. <laughs> if I do 5,000 of anything, 80 of them are going to be about disasters. <laughs> 5,000 Pringles, 80 disasters. <laughs> 5,000 steps, 80 disasters. <laughs> After the success of Floyd Collins, an incredibly flammable cottage industry of event exploitation songs caught fire with composers and recording artists spitting out songs about deaths, wrecks, murders, and ill-fated people of every ilk and vocation. These disaster songs are made to sound old, even if the content matter was topical. The songs were hastily written, often using borrowed tunes and cliched lyrics with simple accompaniment of banjos, guitars, and fiddles. Artists weren't usually accomplished by any stretch, but they didn't need to be to play social functions and spread the audio news. They were the new town criers. Performers in the early 20th century served as tabloid journalists, waiting outside courthouses to hear news and immediately grabbing their banjos and heading for the nearest tavern to tell of the news of the day and tragedy sold best. The speed that these songs were written in was impressive. Ohio Prison Fire was written and performed by Bob and Charlotte Miller a mere three days after the Ohio prison fire itself. It also contains an amazingly campy spoken word section about a fireman consoling a mother identifying her son's body with all the subtlety of Dolph Lundgren in a one-man show of Waiting for Godot. Now her tears are falling fast And she finds her son at last All a-tremble she looks on his charred remains Oh, oh, is this your son's body, lady? Oh, this might be him. Oh, he's little and frail like that. Oh, Jimmy, Jimmy, it's father, honey, father. Then, just to outdo himself, Bob Miller wrote and recorded Crash of the Akron, a single day after a 70-mile-per-hour windstorm whipped a Navy Zeppelin into the sea near New Jersey, killing 74 passengers and crewmen. The Akron sails from Lake Hurst, 7.30 Monday night, an awesome silvery beauty that started on its flight. An enraged element called lightning With fury in its grip Destroyed what was once such beauty Destroyed that no... Ernest Stoneman recorded the story of the mighty Mississippi while the Great River was still in the midst of flooding some 27,000 square miles, displacing 700,000 and killing 246 people. Way out in the Mississippi Valley, just among those flames so grand, rolled the flooded Mississippi River, destroying the world. And still others took the opportunity to use these songs of disasters and demise as a pulpit of sorts. The random and inexplicable circumstances of death and destruction were presented as a clear example of judgment rained down from above against the people who have turned away from their creator's will. Many of the Golden Era disaster songs ended with a dire warning about, inserts in here, 
lest you'd meet your maker. One of the greatest examples of this is 1930s Elder Curry's Memphis Flu, which is a rollicking song about God's wrath taking the form of a flu that was wiping out a city. The verse goes, It is God's mighty hand, he is judging this old land. North and south, east and west can be seen. Yes, he killed the rich, and he killed the poor, and he's going to kill more if you won't turn away from your shame. Or take, for example, Fiddling John Carson's The Storm That Struck Miami, about a 1926 hurricane that swept the East Coast, killing over a thousand which Carson more or less attributed to the Floridians forgetting to say their prayers and missing church on Sunday. Not always religious in nature, Alfred Reed used the song The Fate of Chris Lively and Wife to remind listeners of the importance of looking both ways before crossing a railroad track. You know, so you don't get rammed by a train and solemnly obliterated. Now good people, I hope you take warning as you journey along through this life. Every time when you see railroad crossing, just remember Chris Lively and Lyle. The scope of the song topics range from national catastrophe to local interest story. These smaller events are perhaps only remembered for their namesake songs. The banjo pickin' vaudevillian Uncle Dave Macon wrote Tennessee Tornado about a twister ripping up a tiny town of Cherry Hill. And he wrote it only because he had a buddy there who was a shopkeeper, rather than the storm having some major damage that would cause any sort of interest outside of the area. Or why else would anyone remember the fate of Talmadge Osborne, if not for Ernest Stoneman's bizarre story about a hobo and his failure to jump a freight train resulting in the loss of his arms, <laughs> and then his death? Where'd my arms go? <laughs> hey, engineer, come back! <laughs> I don't know. It's it was not enough just to talk about how he died. He had to lose his arms first. Yeah, they had to disarm him first. But for every forgotten tragedy, there were plenty of songs that covered the most massive news stories with their captivating headlines and their often astronomical death counts. The songs allowed the people to experience the terror far beyond the impacted geographic regions. The Galveston hurricane, the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, the San Francisco earthquake, 
the Chicago Fire, the Great Mississippi Floods, the Pittsburgh Banana Company explosion of 1936, each memorialized in song. By far, the sinking of the unsinkable Titanic fueled the most unthinkable amount of musical dedications. That banana explosion. I sort of wish we could make something like that up. So you're saying there was an actual banana factory explosion in Pittsburgh? There was. Um, And even there's a headline that says, Gas blast rips strip building. Lone worker in warehouse covered with debris for a half hour. And he probably just fell down like a hundred times. Like every time he just kept slipping on banana peel. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's like a cartoon hellscape. I wonder if when the songs they wrote about it at the end, if there was a warning that, you know, God's going to bring wrath on people who are so into phallic-shaped fruit. He was probably aiming for Curious George's friend. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just blowing up the whole building. I think it works there. It was the unsinkable ship, they said. It was as if Icarus had built a keel and blindly sailed it into the sun, along with over a thousand passengers, of course. The sinking of the Titanic captured the world's attention with varying degrees. Many found it horrifying that so many prosperous, swell-looking people had perished. Oh, the anguish, they said. Others found it to be deserved in some way. Here comes those elitist Brits and upstart bombastic Americans in need of some humility. It's said that some of the Irish workers who helped put together the ship cursed it because it was a show of grandiosity and a symbol of Britain's power. African Americans were said to have felt a slight tinge of schadenfreude in it because it was rumored that prize fighter Jack Johnson, with ticket in hand, was turned away from the ship with the captain declaring, I ain't hauling no coal. You can hear that story, which is not true, by the way, in a Lead Belly song. Jack Johnson wanted to get on board. Captain, he says, I ain't hauling no coal. Fairly Titanic, fairly well. Jack Johnson wanted to get on board. Captain, he says, I ain't hauling no coal. Fairly Titanic, fairly well. Talk about it now. The disaster tribute started flooding the market quickly, with maybe the first being called Be British by Ernest Gray in 1912. This song presents its listeners with gallant, heroic men sacrificing themselves to save women, children, and Britain's reputation. The characters in this song simply did what needed doing, and did it with grace, a plume, and stoicism. What a glorious thing it is to know When dangers are of night When the mighty line Many of the earlier written songs about the sinking were in this vein. After a few years, another approach was being voiced. A presentation of the tragedy as a harbinger of things that are owed to those who think too highly of themselves. Don't tap God, these songs say, or he will swat you away like a gnat hitting a high wave windshield. 
One of the most famous of these, and probably the first country song about the Titanic, is from 1924. Here, it's called The Titanic, and is by the ever-prolific Ernest Stoneman. When they left Tingleland, they were making for the shore. The red said declared they would not ride with the poor. So they said to poor below, they were first and had to go. It was sad when that great ship went down. It was sad when that great ship went down. Other versions of the song were titled It's Sad When the Great Ship Went Down and The Sinking of the Titanic. Vernon Dahlhart, who had never met a disaster he couldn't sing about, recorded a version of this song as well. Because, of course, he did. Does anybody check to see whether he actually created any disasters to help his own career? <laughs> I heard he was hanging around the banana factory a lot in Pittsburgh. <laughs> like like when firefighters are arsonists. <laughs> or when he pretended to be an iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> Another version of this song has been playing around the house here for over the past few weeks. It's by a singer called Richard Rabbit Brown. Going hand in hand with the disaster that was the closing of Wisconsin's Paramount Records, there is now only one known copy of a version by William and Versi Smith. Luckily, Harry Smith included it in his anthology of American folk music. We'll be playing a more contemporary version of this song a little bit later. The one Titanic song I wish I had in my collection is from 1929, and it's by Blind Willie Johnson. It's a gospel version, and it's called God Moves on the Water. It is as haunting as a song about any tragedy could possibly be. You're of 1912, April the 14th day. Titanic, night in 1932, Vocalion released a song by High Henry Brown called Titanic Blues, which lyrically talks about coping with the news of the disaster that was the Titanic, which is an interesting take that doesn't really show up very often. Titanic in the deep. 
The next song we're going to play about the sinking of the Titanic was released, according to its lyrics, some 25 years after the tragedy. This one's by the Dixon Brothers, and it's called Down with the Old Canoe. It captures all the basics of most of the previous songs, when did it happen, what happened, and how many died. But the attitude that's displayed in the title alone, calling the ship a canoe, sounds almost snarky. It was 25 years ago when the wings of death came low And spread out on the ocean far and wide A great ship sailed away with her passengers so gay To never, never reach the other side Sailing out to win her fame, the Titanic was her name When she had sailed 500 miles from shore Many passengers and her crew went down with that old canoe. They all went down to never ride no more. The Dixon Brothers chased disaster song fame for many years, but always fell short of Vernon Dahlhart's 5,000-song lead. He was also willing to go where those other singers weren't creating disasters. (laughs) He's like Jessica Fletcher in Murder, She Wrote where he's just always around when these disasters happen so he could be the first one to sing about it. Nobody put it together that they're all Vernon Dahlhart. You see pictures of him parasailing next to the Hindenburg and... Skiing with Sonny Bono. (laughs) (laughs) These are just a few small examples of the hundreds of Titanic songs that were recorded in the first two to three decades after it sank. In the U.S. alone, more than 100 songs about the Titanic were copyrighted within the first eight months after the sinking, though most were never actually published. The Titanic may have buoyed the disaster song industry for quite a while. Not only were there songs in English from England and America, but all over the world in all sorts of different countries, there's just a ton of different songs about about the Titanic. It was such just an international event. Next to songs about that waterlogged boat, coal mining disaster songs come in a close second. Black Lung, Cave-Ins, Strikes, and Strike Busters were easy fodder for songwriters to create mythic heroes like Big Bad John, a hero who made sure everyone else got out of the collapsing mine before he did. In the 1940s and 50s, coal mining tragedies seemed to happen pretty regularly, and songs that told these stories stayed as current as could be. In 1891, 1956, and again in 1958, Spring Hill Mine, located in Nova Scotia, had catastrophic cave-ins, and it was Peggy Seeger who captured a grim tale about the 1958 version with her horribly and horrifically sad song, Ballad of Spring Hill. In the town of Spring Hill, you don't sleep easy. Often the earth will tremble and roll when the earth is restless. Miners die. Bone and blood is the price of coal. Bone and blood is the price of coal. As terrible as that song describes the tragedy, with lines about men who've been digging their own graves for decades, the reality itself was much worse, with trapped workers slowly bleeding to death and 
being forced to drink each other's urine. Very much like being at a Billy Joel concert, I assume. (laughs) Barbara Dixon covered that song and has a really interesting version of it, as do many others. It's really just become part of the folk canon. It doesn't take much to find a sad song about coal mining. Woody Guthrie has a handful, as do Joan Baez, Billy Bragg, Steve Earle, Gillian Welch, Dick Gahan, and those miners who love to get knocked down, Chumbawamba. There are plenty of other songs that don't sound quite as dire, but very few of them are about actual events. Lee Dorsey and Devo sang about working in a coal mine in a way that sounded hip and cool and robotic. Maybe even something that could be done while wearing latex and an energy dome hat. When it rains, it pours. And when the Great Depression struck our country, it poured. And along with that fell stockbroker-sized hail, which smashed into the concrete below. As if needed for collective grieving and commiseration, the public has an insatiable demand for the Sad Saga records. Disaster songs were recorded by more popular country blues and folk artists reaching audiences across the country. The Carter family recorded the classic train wreck song, Engine 143. Sunhouse and Charlie Patton were moaning the blues about the harrowing times of drought and flood. And of course, the terminally parched Woody Guthrie would start regaling people with his Dust Bowl ballads. Get that guy a drink already, jeez! As the fiscal viability became much clearer to labels, A&R men started reframing the disaster songs and murder ballads for their audience. Though stylistically and lyrically similar, songs by black artists were started to be called the blues, and songs by white artists were called old-time music. According to musicologist Hank Sapoznik, this promotional device was actually more of a purposeful industry-imposed censorship of black musicians. Though the experience of true disaster was a more universal experience for African Americans than white listeners, there's not near the representation of pre-war black disaster records, even in the height of its popularity. By World War II, the disaster song fad began to fade. The appeal of country blues began to give way to more western-sounding singing cowboy country songs and introspective delta blues. Americans had less taste for morality tales embedded in tragic ballads as the war acted as its own reminder of mortality. And the prominence of radio and the eventual rise of television eliminated the need for people getting the latest scoops from live performances, sheet music, and 78s. Despite the heyday being over, topical disaster songs never completely disappeared making regular appearances in country music and the broadside folk revival movement. Really, any musical movements heavily involved in social change or political protest would incorporate the latest travesties and inequities to make a statement on current events. One of the longest-running country artists that made a career out of topical songs was Red River Dave McHenry. From the 30s into the 80s, Red River Dave made a career out of others' misfortunes, but all with a sympathetic heart and a full-on Texas twang. The range of his devastatingly sad interest pieces included all sorts of things, including Amelia Earhart's Last Flight, The Flight of Apollo 11, The Ballad of Patty Hearst, The Ballad of Three Mile Island, Shame is the middle name of Exxon, The Pine-Tarred Bat, The Ballad of George Brett, 
and a song moralizing perhaps the darkest moment in American history, the night that Ronald Reagan rode with Santa Claus. Chilling. But we'll listen to my favorite song by him at the end of the show. I thought the middle name of Exxon was X. (laughs) (laughs) And we'd be remiss if we didn't stop to mention Johnny Horton. Horton started out as a fantastic honky-tonk singer and should have been revered for that alone. But we're here to talk about what he did in the late 50s and early 60s. Horton started recording what were called saga songs, which are basically novelty songs about American history. They're often goofy crossover releases that helped earn him a lot of easy money. Some of the songs are based on actual historical events, like Sink the Bismarck. Some are fun-lovingly based on the events, like the Battle of New Orleans. All in all, Horton released a handful of oddities about U.S. history late in his career. They're forgettable, but we don't do forgettable around here. Existing in an oddly compelling intersection of murder ballads and disaster ballads are songs about presidential assassinations. As these events bring forth national shock, outrage, and mourning. Except for McKinley. Am I right? (laughs) It is natural that songwriters add flair and gravitas to songs about these fallen leaders. With the blood barely dry in the Ford Theater booth, ballads about Abraham Lincoln were composed and the sheet music dispersed to all corners of the Union. The songs were dramatic, often with as much focus on the shooters, Booth, Guiteau, Zolgas, as their slain targets. These songs often became part of American folk canon, played for decades after the shots rang out. A bluegrass historian, Bascom Lamar Lunsford, preserved many of them by recording them in 1949 for the Library of Congress, which was then released on Songs and Ballads of American History and the Assassination of Presidents. These ensured a lasting legacy for these songs. Going down the station the other day, and I heard the report of a pistol. And I said to a friend of mine, I said, what does that mean? He looked rather excited like and give me something sort of like this. Oh, they tell me 
Mr. Garfield is shot And the lean mighty low Mighty low They tell me Mr. Garfield is shot However, the assassination of JFK would be one of the single most song-inspiring events that occurred at a time when the record industry was at its single-churning peak. Countless songs about JFK, Lee Harvey Oswald, The Confusion, The Pain, The Conspiracy, and The Zapruder Film were quickly released, mostly on very limited runs on microscopic labels. There's a great compilation by Iron Mountain Analog Research, and it's called The Ballad of JFK, which highlights these bizarrely wonderful historical musical mementos. The album should have been released on limited grassy knoll green vinyl, with or without blood spatter. We'll play one of our favorites later in the show. Most of the songs ooze with sincerity and sadness, acting as true lamentations. Except for Bullet by The Misfits, which is slightly less than reverent. The balladry tradition continues in other styles of music. Punk, hip-hop, modern country, even electronica have continued to tackle the horrors of daily existence as forms of civil disobedience, remembrances, or therapy. Para-Ubu sonically encapsulated the carp bombing of Japan in 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. Bowie wrote Time Will Crawl shortly after hearing about Chernobyl. Heck, a good portion of the Clash's career involved powerfully emotional testaments to real modern issues. Al Stewart consistently blended historical facts and weird characters in his folk-pop musings. Then something went wrong. Terribly wrong. Fewer news stories and social commentary, disaster songs imploded into sappy, regrettable tributes that are so bad, it's as if they mock the crises they are seeking to commemorate. There is no greater example of this than the dedicatory hymns in the wake of the 1986 Challenger explosion, which are so bad. They're pretty good. But also, they make you feel horrible for listening some 30 years after. Of course, John Denver did the cloying flying for me, but going a little deeper is where things get real weird. Here's Jerry Dyke's Starship Fly On with the classic tearjerker lyric, Let the ocean be your pillow, and all its unknown deep, for seven songs still ringing and seven souls that sleep. Let the ocean be your pillow, and all its unknown deep, for seven songs still ringing, and seven souls that sleep. Or here's the uplifting, inspiring, I mean, <laughs> message to you by Doug Mitchell on 1986-45. was time for you to leave. There's nothing we can do except feel a sense of courage and play this song for you. Here's a message to you that's all sing out your name.
Several use the traditional method of recycling popular melodies with new relevant lyrical content, like this nameless YouTube track that we'll call No Nas and No. <laughs> First came an explosion from up in the sky Then the challenger came down and seven people died The tragedy that NASA's brilliant minds could have foreseen If only they dotted their eyes and then stopped across their T's and checked the facts Before outer space, more than Fiacle hadn't warned them So they launched it anyway They should have listened to the experts who said the SRBs aren't sound no one had seen the puff of smoke as it lifted off the ground on NASA, no. What'd you launch for? You knew you'd never tried it. At that colder temperature before, 22 degrees was too cold for the orbiter to fly, so it all crumbled. Seven brave crew members... And there's more. Like, lots more. Thankfully, no one took the low-hanging fruit of Die Sally Ride. Well, we just did. Of course, there was no song more dastardly exploitative than Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. And he was, well, and with that, he was able to dilute dozens of the world's saddest events into the world's single most despicable pop song. Somebody should write a disaster song about Billy Joel writing We Didn't Start the Fire. So, I think... At that, what we'll call the challenger moment is kind of when disaster songs started twisting more into like tributes and charity songs like We Are the World and Do They Know It's Christmas and stuff like that. So so celebrities could feel better about themselves for taking on these topics for, you know, one day. We live in a different time. It's a different realm. I think it became more sensational for for the celebrity than sensational for the event. Yeah, and I think a lot of the songs that are now tribute songs, they're often covers of other songs. And I don't know why they don't write new songs about disasters instead of just rehashing songs that aren't in any way about disasters. I don't know if it's people don't want to take a chance on writing a new disaster song other than Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. It doesn't seem to come up very often. I think there are probably some country songs about killing terrorists too, but I don't really count that kind of garbage. Like after Katrina, we're going to mention this a little bit. I think after Katrina, there was a lot of like rappers who were rapping about that in a poignant and intelligent way. So, But I think it is a risk, and it, it's hard to know what people are going to go for because it's you know there's a fine line between candle in the wind for princess die and no nasa no you know it, it's hard to know especially in a, in a much more sensitive culture sensitive for a good reason but you just you can't you can't err on the side of being like offensive and so i think that's something that even if it's handled in, in a great way it's still you can still look on it with with pretty cynical eyes, I think. Though less tabloid-inspired, or more mockingly touching than its predecessors, disaster ballads still have a role to play in reckoning with tragic and wasted life all around us. Civil rights, gas shortages, violent uprises, 
or more recently, the Oklahoma City bombing, 9-11, Hurricane Katrina. They've all spurned their own subgenres of disaster songs. These songs were made because of Americans' fascination with destruction. Murder ballads have been around for centuries, but topical event songs were successful here more than anywhere else when they started up in the late 19th century. The crux of the disaster song is that the listener needs to take heed and don't let yourself be caught unawares and unprepared to die. Earlier on, we pointed out the six characteristics of the disaster song as defined by Ravel Carr. While I agree with most of them, there's one that just doesn't sit right with me. Other than the Titanic, where over a thousand lives were lost, the most effective disaster songs are about losses of fewer lives. It's so much easier for most people to empathize with a lower number of deaths. It becomes something that can be almost felt as if they or one of their kin could be caught up in such an event. The larger the event, the more abstract the deaths appear. They become numbers and statistics and lose some of their humanity. That's also the charm of the best folk songs in general, too. They push the listener gently into a position of forced empathy. For me, the songs that resonate the most are the ones that are the most intimate and sincere. That's what I find most endearing. The ones that feel like a solitary voice dying to be heard one last time. Tragedies keep happening, and the numbers keep piling up. So too do the songs that try to tell about them. People write them now not because the immediacy of the news is required, but sort of the opposite. Now these songs are created as a way to remember and honor and warn. Uh, one resource we definitely want to mention that was essential in this episode was a three-CD box set called People Take Warning, Murder Ballads and Disaster Songs, 1913 to 1938. Tompkins Square Records, they released this this box set in 2007. It's CD only, unfortunately, but it's wonderful. And it's produced by Christopher King and Hank uh, Sapoznik, who we mentioned in the episode, who are both great music historians and 78 collectors. The songs are amazing. A lot of what we played is from there. And they have an introduction by Tom Waits. And one line he wrote, There's tragic chronicles about the perils of being human. Songs that are roadside graves dug quickly with crosses made of kindling while the grief was still fresh. You know, just really kind of set the mood for the whole whole thing. And even though it's not a vinyl record, I would highly recommend grabbing that People Take Warning if you're interested in these sorts of songs. As for Christopher King, I found out about him, and, and I would assume some of some listeners here have as well through a book called Do Not Sell at Any Price by Amanda Petrusik, who I think is maybe the best music writer working today. The whole book is about collecting 78s, and she kind of travels around in a lot of sections of the book with Christopher King, and it's because of their dialogue that I've started picking up anything I see produced by him. I think as we were go going through all this, you realize how important music is in piecing together a history of, of our country. And maybe it's just us since we're so fascinated by music and history, but I think a lot of things would just be gone if not for the songs that they were, they were told. The music really 
keeps them alive. You know, it it's embalms them with, with some sort of life that is still useful to pull out at the museum or whatever. Unfortunately, I feel like disasters are still going to be a big part of modern life. It certainly seems that way. And so it seems like these songs still have a place. They still, they might need to evolve or come back and really refocus. But I think that, I think they're going to be important again. And I think that how they took over this country at one point means that it's, it's possible, not probable, but possible that, that they could again. I guess I'm trying to say there's still relevance to this music. I really feel strongly about it. It's a lot of fun, and we have fun with it, and it's funny. But I do, I do think like it's it's a great topic to explore, and it's one that, short of this box set and a little bit of writing here and there, people just don't talk about it a lot. All right, uh, you want to play some songs? Yeah, let's do it. I'm going to go first, and this is a song by a band called Freakwater, and the song is The Great Titanic.
All right, that was Freakwater with The Great Titanic, which is a version of a song that we talked about earlier that had a few different versions. And it's just their take on it was a sad day when that great ship went down and all the other, the sinking of the Titanic. It's all the same song over and over again. Uh, This was released in 1989 on Amoeba Records. It's from their debut LP. And Freakwater, if you don't know, you should, they started... Around 1985, I think, when Janet Bean and Catherine Irwin started recording songs onto cassette tapes for fun. And they went under the name Mojo Wish Bean and Trippy's Squash Blossom. So Amoeba Records, who had been putting out Janet Bean's other band's albums, 11th Dream Day, he got a hold of the tape because they were friends, and he just immediately said he was going to fund their album. So he put this album out. I don't think it's been reissued. I don't see people ever really talk about it. It's a great album. All of their albums are great. Both Bean and Irwin, they grew up huge Carter family fans, and they're clearly big fans of like the Leuven Brothers. And the harmonies that they are able to match, they can match any of those. Uh, I know it's kind of blasphemy to say that, but I think their harmonies are on the same level of the Leuven Brothers. Oh, their voices are immaculate. Exactly. And... The, this album, this debut, it's a real short album, but it came out a year before Uncle Tupelo's No Depression, which is usually credited as launching that alt-country genre. Uncle Tupelo has a much larger fan base, and they deserve the credit. They're great. But Freakwater is at least as good as Uncle Tupelo, if not a whole lot better. They're so much more consistent, too, and they've been around a lot longer. I don't care what anybody says. They're better. You heard it here first on Highway Hi-Fi that Joe thinks Uncle Tupelo sucks. That's my hot take. (laughs) This episode just turned into a disaster. All right, I'm going to play two songs, and they're both from reissues by uh, Iron Mountain Analog Research that we talked a little bit about in the episode. Uh, The first is one of those JFK songs, and this is Autry Inman, with the Ballad of John F. Kennedy. Now let me tell you people about a mighty man Whose destiny it was to be the leader of our land He fought for life, he fought for right, he fought for liberty He proved himself a hero on the land and on the sea Then one day he flew away across the nationwide Out to Dallas, Texas, along the Great Divide To talk about the land he loved, of peace and liberty And how to make a better home such as you and me John F. Kennedy was a mighty man John F. Kennedy the leader of our land He fought for life He fought for right He fought for liberty He proved himself a hero on the land and on the sea While riding in a great parade, his sweet wife by his side Among the many thousands who 
came from far and wide To hear him talk about our land that he loved so dear A sniper's bullet cut him down while the thousands cheered Long he'll live in history and great will be his name And on the hero's grave today there burns a tiny flame To show he died for the land he loved, for peace and liberty A hero great, he won his fame on land and on the sea She kissed his lips and in his hands she placed a band of gold. Yeah, so that was The Ballad of John F. Kennedy. It's the uh, by Autry Inman. It's the first track off the compilation called Ballad of JFK that was 2016. The song was originally released in 1964 on Sims Records, which is one of those no-name labels that just kind of threw out a bunch of stuff. Uh, Autry Inman was an Alabama guy. He's kind of country and a little bit of rockability. He was a pretty well-respected songwriter, and his songs were covered by Dolly Parton, Waylon, Johnny Cash, George Jones, Hank Williams. I mean, who's who of country music uh, around that time? He's got a great voice. He's a lot of fun. And this song is a little bit more a little bit more uplifting, focused more on the president than than his death though it it ventures in there. But that record with all those JFK songs, is it truly is fascinating. And it's actually how we got to this topic because we started talking about that. And then we said, I don't don't know if that's big enough or interesting enough. But then we kind of backed it up a little bit and and got to the disaster songs in general. But it's it's a worthy pickup, especially if you like this song. But I, I think it's great. And the my second song is uh, Red River Dave, who we also talked about in the Turntable Talk. And this is my favorite song by him called California Hippie Murders. It was in the sixth decade of the 20th century When the hippie movement plagued our continent Living lives devoid of care Short of cash and long of men They were dropouts from the great establishment Oh, the California hippie murders Flashing knives and blood And the word pig carved upon a young girl's breast A mother pleading for her unborn son While they killed their victims one by one Was the worst crime in the annals of the world was evil, a curse from his birth. How he hypnotized and mesmerized each girl with dope, sex, and music. He invaded the earth, preparing his kingdom. Ah, he was. Totally 
word is flashing knives and blood And the word pig carved upon a young girl's breast I'm out there pleading for her unborn son While they kill their victims one by one Was the worst crime in the annals of the West Holy The California Hippie Murders by Red River Dave. It was a 1970 song on Revel Records, which is a, it's an ultra-rare 45 that I would never have any way of finding. Uh, I don't think I even saw it on Discogs. But the good folks at Iron Mountain put it out on their original 2015 Hillbillies in Hell Volume 1, which um, I was smart enough or lucky enough to pick up when it first came out because it seemed like such a fun, cool thing. And it is that first volume. All the volumes are great, but that first volume's fantastic. Of course, if you listen to the song, you've probably figured out it's about the, uh, the Manson family murders, which has been well traced, especially on podcast. <laughs> Seems like everybody has a Manson podcast these days. <laughs> so I'm not going to talk too much about the murders, but I, again, it's an interesting kind of intersection of a national event that everybody had strong feelings for and murder ballads. So both my songs aren't true disaster songs, but they, they're kind of somewhere in between murder ballads and, and disaster songs. Red River Dave is a lot of fun. He's got his own compilation out there if, if you're interested in that, but um, his yodeling is, is top-notch. Yodeling about Charlie Manson. I mean, it just doesn't get much better than that. Probably better is the wrong word. The last song we're going to play tonight is, and please hear me out, it's the Bee Gees with their coal mining disaster song called New York Mining Disaster 1941. I thought you were going to say Saturday Night Fever. Didn't I already play that on the show? (laughs) In the event of something happening to me There is something I would like you all to see It's just a photograph of someone that I knew Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know what it's like on the outside? Don't go talking too loud, you'll cause a landslide Mr. Jones I keep straining my ears to hear a sound Maybe someone is digging underground Or have they given up and all gone home to bed Thinking those who once existed must be dead Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know? In the event of something happening to me There is something I would like you all to see 
It's just a photograph of someone that I knew. Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know what it's like on the outside? Don't go talking too loud, you'll cause a landslide. All right, that was New York Mining Disaster 1941 by, yeah, the Bee Gees. At that point in their career, they sounded kind of like the Beatles. This I have this on a Best of Bee Gees, which I I didn't even know I really had until I started researching disaster songs. And the Best of Bee Gees, I swear, was released in 1969 on Atco Records. The song itself was off of their album, The Bee Gees First. Even though I don't think that's actually their first album. Uh, anyway, they're confusing. At this point, they sounded like British rock music, like the Kinks or the Rolling Stones uh, and the Beatles. A lot of people even thought that Bee Gees stood for Beatles group and that they were actually the Beatles. I don't... Bunch of idiots, I think. So what you're saying is Freakwater better than Uncle Tupelo and Bee Gees better than the Beatles. Okay, got it. Go ahead. Yep. No nasty to know. <laughs> the song itself was written, I think they were on a boat when they wrote this. They were sailing from <laughs> Australia or something. It's really hard to do research on the Bee Gees because I don't like them. But I do like this song. The song itself is not based on a real event, uh, but it they claim it was inspired by the 1966 Aberfan mining disaster in Wales. Anyway, that's my second song. That's our fourth song. And I think we need to go back and listen to the trivia. All right. I'm going to play it one more time. Remember, you're trying to just name the 13 artist band. I don't care what order. Just get as many as you can. I'm going to go ahead and play it again. Here we go. Fire. Joe, did you get it or you need to listen some more? I bombed it. I did a terrible job on this. I, I swear I recognize 11 of them probably. And uh-huh. I, I just, they're going by so fast in there. I don't think no matter how many times I listen to it, it would take me a while to get them. So I'll give you the ones I, I think I got Okay. first. Johnny Cash. Yes. R.E.M. Yes. Leonard Cohen. Absolutely. Electric Six. Yes. The Clash? No. Are they in there? Okay, I thought I heard them. Um, the Doors? No. That was just a total guess. Go through the rest of them, because they it's really well put together, and it's so... But it goes through so fast for me, I have, I have a hard time picking up on them. It, it's hard. It is. It's, it's hard, hard to go through. I don't think I could do it if I didn't make it. It's a great quiz. And they're all, they all have fire in the title, except for the R.E.M. song. Johnny Cash, Ring of Fire is the first one. Arthur Brown, Fire. I thought you had got that one. You know Me that too. song? Yep, I do. Yep. Okay. Then there's the Pixies, Dig for Fire. Oh, shit. Of course. Okay. And then there's Bruce Springsteen, It's Fire, 
uh, not I'm on fire, but fire from the live box set. Mm-hmm. Then there's Derek Morgan, yep. uh, Blazing Fire. And then there's R.E.M., the one I love. And then there's just this one. I'd be very impressed if anybody got this because it's, it's garbled at best. I mean, the, the song is just kind of like that. But the Meat Puppets, Lake of Fire. And then there's Eno, Babies on Fire. That's the one that I think I'm most upset about not getting. I thought you were going to get that one. Low, Things We Lost in the Fire. Okay. No, that's not the name of the song, though, is it? No. I it's Closer. I think the name of the song is Closer. Okay. But the album's Things We Lost in the Fire. Then there's Handsome Family, If the World Should End in Fire. Okay. And that's that very orchestrated one. And then you got Leonard Cohen, Who by Fire. And then there's band, the band, Wheels on Fire. Okay. And then you got uh, the Electric Six, Danger High Voltage. That was great. I love that. Yeah, I kind of like those. They're kind of fun. I think yeah. I did one with Yeah, Yeah before. This one's harder because fire is so short. So Joe got, what, five? So let us know if you beat Joe, if you got more than five. Oh, man. I hope you did. I don't. I never know. Like, low would be hard. I don't know how many people know that low song. I know you would know it. I actually listened to that album the other night. Like two nights ago, I put that album on. I haven't listened to it in 15 years, but I put it on. It's a beautiful record. Really really is a good record. And The Handsome Family, that's not an easy one. Derek Morgan, I thought you might get just. I should have gotten that. We listened to it. Yep. Yep. And then the rest, you know, Electric Six. I don't know. I don't know if people know the Electric Six nowadays. Have you ever heard. This was this was from probably eighty six or so, maybe maybe a little earlier. Uh-huh. There was a Robin Williams stand up where he did a cover of Bruce Springsteen's "Fire," but in the voice of Elmer Fudd. I have heard that. My dad had that on MP three. It's he really put, great. He likes to put that on mixes. That's really funny. Yeah, yeah, I like it a lot. It's weird that you. <laughs> I should I should have done that. <laughs> that I would have gotten. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, let's take care of some business here. You want to talk about uh, social media? Yeah, follow us on Twitter, Instagram. Those are the places where we're posting the most. And our handle on both of those is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. Easy to find. Uh, Communicate with us there. We have Facebook. You can find us there. Pretty simple. And if you want to email us anything you want to chat about, you can email us at podcast at gmail.com. And if you get a chance, uh, there is a podcast out there called Let It Roll. And the one of the most recent ones was from no- November 4th, and it's about Little Willie John, and it's it's great. It's about the a biography on Little Willie John, who, as all of you I'm sure know, sings my favorite song of all time, Fever. The podcast is really good. Check it out if you haven't already. It's a great show, and it's also, like us, it's part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Yeah, thanks to Pantheon for having us on. It's great to be associated with so many other good music podcasts. Hopefully, some of our listeners are are finding some great stuff out there, and some some of the other podcasts are sending their listeners to us. Um, There's a lot of overlap of great ideas and great music and really building that whole world of, you know, the history of rock and roll. So uh, 
we really appreciate them taking a chance on us and allowing us to be part of their podcast network. And as always, go out and spend some money on some records. Uh, A few things we mentioned that I would strongly suggest would be that people take warning from Tompkins Records. That thing's great. If you go find that Freakwater record, is that impossible to find, Joe? That one is. They have some other, they have five other records, I believe, and they're all outstanding. Each of them is better than Uncle any Uncle Tupelo album. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Uh, but they are all really amazing. And everyone, if you liked that song at all, you're going to love everything they've done. They have great, they do great covers, great originals. It's really nice. I'm just trying to think of some specific things that we can suggest. I think Freakwater is so good and that anything you can find by them or get by them is worth it. Same goes for the Iron Mountain research mm-hmm. or analog research. Everything they put out is just of the highest quality. I recently got Bull Moose had a, a variant of the latest Hillbillies in Hell. I think they're already up to volume nine. And it's a cool like red and black splatter that you could only get through Bull Moose. So I ordered it and I've been, I love that one too. That record label can, you can do no wrong, whatever they're putting out. Uh, the point is, just go out and and spend some of your hard-earned money on people worth it, worth it as far as putting great music out, musicians who are working hard. Go see a show. You know, really, we challenge you to to make sure that you know you're supporting the music that you love. And I recently, I just heard there's a new album out by Kate Laban and Bradford Cox, who is the guy from Deer Hunter, mm-hmm. and it's on. Mexican Summer, they do these releases where they'll put out a fairly short album. It's like the Marfa Myths ones. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. This album is amazing. I didn't really know anything about Kate LeBond, but I know Bradford Cox pretty well. I'm a big fan of Deer Hunter. This album really, to me, sounds like Kevin Coyne and Dagmar Krause's Babel record. It is so great. I know I told you a little bit about it, but if you get a chance, go to Mexican Summer, buy it from them. They're an awesome label. We've gotten, I've ordered books from them and records from them. This is absolutely worth getting. I think it's going to end up being something I listen to a lot for a long, long time. Yeah, I put it immediately on my want list after Joe was telling me about it. So anyways, we don't typically do recommendations like that, but I feel like maybe we should at least try to push you in the direction of some things that you might like if you've gone this far with us. But uh, yeah, we, we appreciate you. Thank you for, for listening and, and thank you for supporting us. And I guess one thing we haven't mentioned that we probably should, because all the other podcasts do is if you can leave us a, a review or a five-star rating, try to help kind of build the audience, that would be fantastic. Or just maybe tell somebody who loves music about us. Maybe tell somebody who loves disasters. We're great for people who love disasters. (laughs) Maybe there's somebody who needs a topic for a song and they need, they can write about the banana explosion of Pittsburgh. The great banana company explosion of 1936. Seems ripe for music. Yeah. Just watch, (laughs) just watch your step with that one. (laughs) It's got mass appeal. All right, we got to get out of here. I'm making banana jokes. I'm making more banana jokes. All right, thanks, everybody, and we will see you next time. The end. Can I, can I get some tea?
Yes, Woody. Yes, you can have you can have a drink. Water the water's right here. It's free. Just leave Oklahoma. Jeepers. Hey diggers, this is an announcement. Episode 18 is on the way. We are in the final polish. All the bodywork, sanding, and the paint has been put on this rocket ship, so we just need that final coat to finish. Coming out of the last few episodes of the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast that concentrated on specific geographies like London, LA, San Francisco, and New York, we are now in the home stretch of our time in the 1960s. And so with this one, it's not about a place on a map, but a year in the life. It's called Episode 18. 1969 and it's a year so big in rock and roll it'll take two episodes to tell the full tale part one will cover mostly the first half of the year we'll spend most of our time in the uk checking in with the beatles as they are beginning to fray internally while friends and competitors the rolling stones are about to become the greatest rock and roll band in the world Of course, the Fab Four are still able to be the Beatles, so therefore they are not going down without a fight. And the Glimmer Twins must make a sacrifice to achieve the greatness of that 68-73 run of Peak Stones. Then we go beyond England and America and venture into outer space where we dissect the moonshot and how it affected society and the arts. So, like the sci-fi that surrounds the very real human endeavor, we will peek into the future ourselves with some rock and rollers that will really take us into the next decade. So hold tight. It won't be long now. It's coming, and we think you will all be pleased. Episode 18, 1969, Part 1. Tell a friend. 